Master 18 Growth Stage, Patrick Campbell, CEO and founder of ProfitWell, put forward an incredibly important question. Why a lot of us who are kind of getting past the startup stage and are getting into the scale stage are not really doing our jobs. Um, and that's just not, you know, everyone out here that also includes me, that also includes ProfitWell and Price Intelligently. Um, but this really came out of a little bit of research that we were doing because um, the company that I run, we were basically getting out of that startup stage. And we were discovering that essentially we were doing a lot of things wrong. And as we were really kind of trying to talk to mentors, trying to talk to folks that had helped us get past the startup stage, what we started to learn is that a lot of us are doing a lot of things wrong. And the reason for that is because it starts with the simple fact that a lot of us want to be like folks like this. Yeah, you got Mark Benioff, you got David Cancel, you got Gail Goodman, you got some really, really successful folks in the world of SaaS, in the world of subscriptions. And you might not necessarily want to be like any of these like famous or popular folks in business, but there's someone that you are inspired by, there's someone that you aspire to be, right? Might be an old boss, might be a mentor, might be a whole host of folks that are in your career. There's someone who is better at the things that you want to get better at, that you want to be like. Now, in studying a lot of these folks and talking to a lot of founders and doing some nice introspection, um, what I discovered is that a lot of times our approach to actually starting to become like these folks, we start off on one end of the spectrum here and we want to get over there. And what a lot of us end up doing is we do things like listen to podcasts, right? So who here's listen to podcasts, right? We're on our commute and we're like, hey, this podcast, this is going to give us that tactic. This is going to give us the thing that's going to make us successful, right? And then we don't necessarily get the thing that we need. And so what we end up doing is reading books. Because you know that second chapter in Mark Benioff's biography about how he fell down when he was six years old off his bike and how that's a metaphor for the cloud? You know, that's the thing that's going to make or break our business, right? And then we go to conferences um, like this, right? Or Dreamforce, because that really, really inspiring speaker, you know, Al Gore or someone else who's going to get up there and talk about something that has nothing to do with our industry, you know, that's going to unlock us. That's going to inspire us to be successful. And if that's not enough, we consume an insane amount of social media. And if you don't get enough out of social media, then we'll spin up YouTube and we'll listen to someone like Gary Vee to tell us that we need to hustle our effing faces off, right? Does this sound a little bit familiar? Does this sound a little bit of how like, you learn, right? And the thing is, is that it's not that any of these aren't successful and that any of these aren't helpful. There's plenty of tactics, there's plenty of things that we can learn from these individuals. The problem is, is that when we listen to these individuals, when we go to these conferences, when we get inspired by the books and the podcasts that people are putting out, we don't end up doing anything. And what I mean by that is we actually went out and we talked to, it's actually about 50,000 different folks, and we asked them a couple of questions about what they implemented or if they implemented, and we actually wanted to answer the question, how many individuals actually implemented the last great piece of content or the last great tactic that they learned? And what we found is that it was only about one out of 10 of us, right? So who here has listened to something that was great, something that you thought was gonna really make or break your business? And then who here didn't actually implement that when they went back home? The same too here at SASDOC. I'm Alex Sumer host of the SaaS Revolution Show, bringing you a very special episode this week. Before we get to it, here is Patrick on why we don't implement the advice we hear.
What really comes down to is the same thing around the human condition that affects us when we're trying to achieve anything. And in the startup world in particularly, especially the SaaS world, what that ends up being is we're not really scared enough or we're not really inspired enough to actually make those changes. And in a certain respect, a lot of us end up falling into this trap where we end up playing startup. We get a little ego around, well, that's not the right thing that we should do. We're going to do something else. Or we get a little bit complacent, right? We get a little high on our own supply, as they would say. And we're basically like, we're awesome. We're going to do really good things. And then all of a sudden, the growth doesn't come. Bad, however. And what Patrick does for the rest of his talk is give people a bit of a jolt. That's what we want to achieve with this special episode which we put together to mark the launch of our fourth flagship conference, SASTOP 19, returning to Dublin October 14th to 16th. According to Patrick, there are two major problems that SAS founders and executives need to address. How they build a product and how they tell the world about it and distribute it further. While two very different challenges, they share one commonality. They derive from not speaking to customers enough. I know you've heard this advice a million times, we're taking a slightly different approach here. We've gathered tactical advice from five SAS.18 speakers who'll tell you this in a more indirect way. It may seem like they're talking about something completely separate, yet they always get to the same conclusion. Whatever the challenge, part of the resolution is directly connected with talking to your customers. You will see all of these speakers at SAS.19, which will be your chance to talk to them. Super early bird tickets are now on sale at sasdoc.com. Patrick, the problem with building products has nothing to do with technicalities and everything to do with customer conversations. Our approach to product has basically been set back in the past 10 years because a lot of us are really, really focused on producing volume. And what ends up happening is we get a lot of advice from people that tell us to focus on your customer. So who here has heard focus on your customer before? Right? It's a cliche. We retweet the articles. We don't read the articles, but we do retweet them, right, that tell us to do this. The issue is, is that a lot of us respond to this, and I've dealt with lots of fun, arrogant product people in my day. A lot of us, what we end up saying is instead of focusing on our customer, we say something like, hey, well, Steve Jobs didn't talk to a customer. So like, I don't need to either, right? And that means that we think we're Steve Jobs, which is like a whole nother conversation that we can have. But what's really kind of fascinating is this has caused us not to talk to our customers. We actually have data on this. We collected data from, I believe, about 1,800 different founders and executives. And we actually asked them, how many non-sales research conversations are you having on a monthly basis with your customers? Meaning, how many conversations are you having about their wants, their needs, their wishes, their problems? And what we found in particular, is that most of us are having 10 or less conversations on a monthly basis. And this includes not only Johnny and Jane startups, this includes companies that are at scale and companies that are doing more than 50 million a year in revenue. But the implication of this is that we're actually building the wrong product. To negate this, he offers a whole new way of looking at value using, as an example, well, a cup of coffee. I wanna introduce you to a new model of like thinking about value that we introduced about a year ago. When you think about value, and it doesn't matter what kind of product you're talking about, it could be a cup of coffee, it could be a nonprofit, it could be a piece of enterprise technology, you have two axes of value. So when we're talking about a cup of coffee, and we've all heard of coffee before, yeah? 
That was an easy joke. I was trying to get you to laugh a little bit with me. But when you think about coffee, you have two axes, right? The first axis of value are the actual features of a cup of coffee. So these are things like taste, country of origin, temperature, things like that. The second axis of value is the actual willingness to pay. And what I can do is I can use some methodologies where I can survey this entire room and I can figure out that of all of the folks who drink coffee in this room, most of you care about taste. Not all of you care about taste, but most of you do care about it. And then I can find out that of the other attributes, you're pretty indifferent about temperature. And then there's very, very few of us, only the hipsters in the room, who really care about country of origin, right? Any hipsters in the room? No, they don't have jobs, it's totally fine. No, I'm just kidding. Now, if I cross-reference this data with willingness to pay data, where I can survey this entire room about willingness to pay, I can find out that those individuals who care about taste, you're willing to pay about 30% more. Those individuals who care about temperature, there's very, very few of you, but you're willing to pay about 20% less. And then finally, those hipsters in the room, there's very, very few of you, but you're willing to pay about 35% more. Another fundamental reason to get the product right. If done right, it could be your best marketing effort. Bridget Harris, CEO and co-founder of You Can Book Me, is someone who inherently believes that. So much so that she's never invested a cent in sales. Very early on, the product had powered by You Can Book Me on the free version. However, she learned a valuable lesson about free version. We imagine that the free version is going to look like this. It's kind of like a little mini version of your, of your upgraded tool. But I think, and in our experience, the reality was for us that actually what you're offering people is a slice. It's a sort of a sense of, oh, have a little bit, and then maybe once you've got a little bit, you'll create the appetite to pay us more money. And um, what we saw was that it didn't do that really. All it did was create complexity, confusion, dissatisfaction, because the free tool wasn't good enough, but they didn't want to pay for the bigger tool, and essentially we were in a bit of a mess. So we had to set out to rebuild, and we're still doing this really, what our free tool looks like. So it's a product in its, in its own terms. Um, and one of the things that we had to do was look at all these features that we had chucked into the free tool that you can book me five years ago, which not only were unnecessary, we were sort of giving it away sort of unnecessarily, but also were confusing, were costing us in support uh, time. So we basically took a big lawnmower type action to our product. And a few years ago, new users to You Can Book Me had a very different experience of that free tool. And the impact on that was we had a fourfold increase in our revenue growth. I, we just changed, you know, the revenue growth was around 8% a month and it went to 45% that next month. The free version and the paid version, they saw a worrying trend. But at the very beginning, we were very, very interested in everybody that used us, whether they were free or paid. We built our own internal tool called Feedback Frenzy, and it was absolutely brilliant. And all the advice that everybody says, which is engage with people, talk to people, find out what, how they're using your tool, all the rest of it, absolutely do it. Um, no doubt or question. But as you get mature, as your number of customers increase, as you have you know, your objectives and essentially your strategy is to, is to focus, you, do, you can't let uh, your support end up looking like this, which is a sort of a gargantuan, um, you know, operation to try to keep people happy because essentially, eventually people start falling, falling off the scaffolding. So you need to basically stop, figure out how you're going to support your customers, figure out what's most um, profitable for you, frankly, um, and what is going to create success um, in, your, in your customer and user experience.
So we did, again, a lot of stuff. We um, created all the you know, feature pages and webinars and videos. We had pop-ups. We used an original software after Feedback Frenzy we used Enchant. Eventually, what we realized is that we needed to rethink our entire relationship and start thinking of support as being, you know, the first step in a journey where your onboarding really has to um, involve no support. And if you have support uh, through onboarding, it means that you need to fix your product, which is what we've been doing. And in uh, two years ago, over half of our company was working in support, including me, including C uh, my CTO, uh, my partner and co-founder, Keith. You know, it was just crazy. Like, we all were basically answering tickets the whole time. We did not get a grip on this. Um, and because we and we didn't just try to improve the way we answer tickets or get better auto-replies or something. What we did was we, re we rebuilt the product, we rebuilt the onboarding, we rebuilt the knowledge base, we rebuilt why people were failing. I hired a, UI, um, a UX um, designer and we essentially uh, started from scratch. And the result was the following year we were down to three people, which was a th represented a third of our company. Since the support tickets were the product feedback that you can book me use wisely. It was their way of speaking to customers. For the past two years, they've been profitable. That, of course, is a luxury not every other company can afford. He spoke about the challenge products currently have because their makers aren't talking to customers. Patrick Campbell brought in the second challenge, distributing that product. Now, what's happened in the distribution market is that we've basically lost a lot of our power. And what I mean by that is that CAC is steadily increasing over time. Everyone know what CAC is, your customer acquisition costs? What we've actually found is that customer acquisition costs has actually gone up in the past five years by about 60 to 70%, meaning that that customer in both B2B and in B2C that costs you, let's say, $100 five years ago, they're now costing you $155 to $170. And that's across different verticals. It's across B2B and in B2C. Actually, this is not ideal. What Patrick goes on to suggest is that instead of focusing on acquisition, Companies should pay much more attention to retaining customers. And as you probably guessed it, that requires conversations with existing customers. We already showed you how Bridget Harris does it. But because we know how important acquiring new customers still feels like, I'll focus the rest of this episode on the subject of acquisition. We'll start with how you're positioning your products out there, then jump onto increasing your traffic and finish off with daring to sell. When it comes to positioning, there is no better human to speak on the matter than April Dumford. And the first thing to understand about positioning is that there is no going to a multitude of markets and expecting the customers from one of them to define your marketing category, because otherwise this could happen to you. This is back in 2000. The, the entrepreneur was super famous. He had already uh, founded a couple of companies and sold them. So for this one, he was super ambitious. And he announced that his problem that he was going to solve is he is building a revolutionary human transporter. So he went and raised a giant amount of money from kind of a who's who of Silicon Valley VCs. And then he kept talking to the press about it and says, we're revolutionizing human transport. This is going to be really exciting. Uh, the press kept talking to his investors and investors were saying things like his lead investor was John Doerr. And he said, I predict this company is going to reach a billion dollars faster than any product ever in history. Uh, Jeff Bezos was an uh, angel investor and he predicted that the product was going to be more important than the internet. Steve Jobs, not to be outdone, also an angel investor in this product, said this is going to be bigger than the PC and this revolutionary human transporter thing, cities were going to be designed around it. 
So needless to say, people were really excited about this. What could a revolution in human transport look like? I don't know if you're like me, like you're thinking flying cars. We're getting flying cars. Finally, we're getting a flying car. And I wasn't the only one that thought that. The press was writing loads about this product. They were combing through his patents, and there was a rumor that what we were getting was a hovercraft, and it was powered by science and magic. And so there was such pent-up demand for this thing. The founder was invited to go on national television on Good Morning America and announce the new thing uh, in, in front of you know, the entire United States. So he goes on you know, Good Morning America and he says, well, this is it. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. We're going to get it now. The revolution in human transport. Are you ready for it? Here it comes. And then he unveiled this, which is the segue. And people were super disappointed. Uh, because that wasn't their idea of revolutionary human transport. We didn't think we were getting a two-wheeled stand-up golf cart thing. We thought we were getting a flying car. And then even when we got over our disappointment, we still couldn't figure it out because the company kept saying, it's revolutionary human transport. And we were like, we already know it ain't that, buddy. Uh, it's something else, but I can't figure it out. Is it like a car? Am I supposed to drive it on the road? Or is it like a scooter where I drive it on the sidewalk? No one could figure it out. Can I take that thing to grandma's house will it make it that far if i do where do i put the kids do they go in a little jetson's backpack in the back no one could figure this thing out the company predicted that by the end of the first year they'd be selling 10,000 units a week of this thing and instead it took them six years to sell 30,000 units in total never ever let the customers define your market category instead do this if we decide we have to deliberately position in a market, there are multiple choices of markets that we can pick. How do we pick one? So we need to figure out our positioning in such a way that it advantages our unique strengths. You can think about it this way. If I think about this is my product and these are all the capabilities of my product. And so some of those capabilities are just kind of okay and some of them are amazing. If I go and talk to my best customers, my customers that don't churn, my customers that close the fastest, my customers that never ask for a discount, and you ask them, what's my secret sauce? What do you love the most about me? You will see this pattern where they're not talking about a thousand capabilities you have, they're talking about a handful. And that's your secret sauce. Then what you need to do is you need to say, okay, there's lots of different markets that overlap with my capabilities, but only a few of those markets overlap with my secret sauce. And you need to pick the one that overlaps with your secret sauce. So if I take it back to my email for lawyers thing, I could be email, I could be chat, I could be team collaboration. If I'm email, well, it doesn't overlap with my cool file sharing thing, so I shouldn't be that. Same deal with chat. Team collaboration, on the other hand, puts my secret sauce right in the middle of the market. Is that thing again. You have to speak to your customers to figure out what is your secret sauce. But defining your marketing category well isn't enough to get positioning right. You need to pay attention to trends as well care about trends because trends are cool and everybody wants to know about them. That's the new thing that everybody's writing about. And buyers don't want to be left behind. So you'll come in pitching your CRM and they'll say, yeah, but what about the blockchain? Or what about the AI? We need to know your strategy for that. It's because people don't want to be left behind and they want to know what that's all about. For us as product people that are selling products, um, we need to know that the trend itself doesn't define the market, but it can make the market just a little, like, you know, special, special. 
what you're actually looking for is this intersection between what your product does, market context, and the trend. Category and trends need to work together because if they don't, you get self-driving cats. I had this company in Silicon Valley call me once, and they said what they were was the sharing economy for pets. <laughs> and I kept saying, the sharing economy for pets? I do not understand that. And they got really mad at me, and they kept saying, it's sharing economy for pets, you idiot. Why, why don't you understand that? And I said, why does anybody want to share a pet? And then they said, no, you don't understand it. What we are is Uber for cats. And I was like, oh, man, we've taught the cats how to drive. It's a self-driving cat. And then they were like, no, no. And it turned out what they actually have is a marketplace for pet services. So if you want a dog groomer to come to your house, you can order one on your phone and it comes in. Whatever. It was too late. I was already on self-driving cats and I was all disappointed. And so they, you know, they told me what their product was all about and they told me about the trend, but they didn't actually tell me what they were. Uber is not a market. The sharing economy is not a market. What they are is in the pet services business. Make sure that nobody thinks you're teaching cats how to drive. Now we need to get some traffic to your website for people to actually discover you. No better mechanism than content marketing. However, we all know we live in a sea of content. SEO master Eric Sue offers five tricks for scaling traffic by building an evergreen engine. A word of warning, you have to be patient in the building process. This will take some time. It took Eric over two years to surpass 20 downloads a month for his podcast, Growth Everywhere. It was worth it as nowadays he gets hundreds of thousands of downloads every month. But beyond patience, you have to do a couple more things. Eric picks up from the growth stage. Why does Wikipedia seem to rank for every single thing? How are they always number one, number two, number three? So, you know, I'm from America, uh, and, you know, Abraham Lincoln, he's a pretty cool president. Um, and they're number one, uh, Wikipedia again, okay? Why is Wikipedia always number one, right? You look at that, it looks like any other Wikipedia channel, but what people don't know is that, I don't even know what time it is, but sorry. Um, in 2007, 13,000 words, okay? In 2011, 18,000 words. In 2014, 20,000 words. And in 2017, 24,000 words. So you see this happening over and over and over. You just use the Wayback Machine. You can see this with these websites, whether it's Wikipedia, TripAdvisor, uh, Yelp. It's user-generated content, right? So how do you take this concept that clearly works and apply it to your business, right? Oh, yeah, you know, they get user-generated content, but I don't. So still, you can still use these same concepts for your own business, okay? So 10 companies, I mean, you know, with best digital marketing campaigns, this is on our website. Um, we talked about different companies doing digital marketing. So Uber, we talked about American Express, we just talked about different campaigns, okay? This is very simple. What we did in 2016, we just added one paragraph to that post, okay? It was originally 731 visits a month on that blog post. Added one paragraph, and it jumped up 4x to 2,800 visits per month, okay? Like, oh, cool, cool, let's do it again. Did it again, in 2018, jumped up to 5,400 visits a month. So that's a 7.25x increase, okay? Like, oh yeah, yeah, let's try it again. Tried it again. Second half of 2018, jumped up to 10,000 visits a month, okay? So what can you look at that you've made already? Let's say you're creating content already. I'm assuming a lot of you are creating content. How can you use the same concept and apply to what you're doing already? Because then you gain leverage, right? And the analogy I like to use is like, you don't go buy a car and then you drive it for a week and you're done. It doesn't work like that, right? And the crude example is like, you don't just get in a relationship and you're out of a relationship a week later, because that's like exhausting, right? 
So you don't, you're looking to build an evergreen engine. You're looking to make the most of what you have already. You're looking to tend to your garden, okay? So I also like doing this too. Like this is fairly manual, but it's at least proving to stakeholders that what you're doing is generating some kind of ROI, right? Otherwise people are like, oh, I don't know what these, you're doing the stuff around content, you're doing the stuff around SEO, like what's the ROI? That's the ROI, don't argue with the numbers, okay? So that's up there, you know, people can see it's irrefutable, everything is in green, everything went up, right? So for us too, on the agency side of things, like it actually drives consultation leads, right? What's the ROI? So at the very bottom where it says six, that one blog post in one month drives six leads. Each lead is worth about $500 to us, so that's $3,000 in value. Multiply that over 12 months, that's $36,000, okay? That's the ROI. Follows with four more tricks, which we do not have time for on this podcast, but because we're so thrilled about the launch of our fourth flagship conference, we're going to put it up for you so you can watch the whole talk for free. You can find a link to it on the show notes. One thing I'll share from Eric Salk has everything to do with talking to your customers. It's around something he calls success gaps. My friend has an email collection tool and um, he was asking his team, what is success for our team? And his team was like, well, you know, if people sign up for a free trial and then end up paying for uh, the account, that is considered success. And he's like, no, that's product activation. So then what is success? This concept around success gaps will help you guide your entire content strategy moving forward. The idea is this, what do you need? What do your customers need to become successful? For him, they need a website, A. B, they need an email list. C, what else do they need? You just keep going down the list and you're gonna come up with so many different uh, topics that you can write about, right? And um, you know, if you think about HubSpot, about five to 10% of times they're experimenting with new content. And you see like, you know, why are they writing about stuff? How to buy Bitcoin, right? How does that make any sense at all? But it does make sense, right? Because it's experimental and then also they're, they're attracting top of the funnel traffic. And these people might eventually, these people that are into Bitcoin might eventually become customers, right? So you're talking to customers to build a better product, position it smarter and know what topics they need to read more about. To get customers, you still need to sell. And that's all about talking to customers. In SaaS, oftentimes that conversation starts over email. According to Steady FD, CEO and co-founder of Close.io, a great email starts by understanding you are writing it for someone else's gain, not yours. When you write emails, you can do it selfishly. You can just go, I want to get more demos. Let me write up some shit so somebody clicks a link to Calendly, schedules a time so I can get more demos. That is your perspective. Ask yourself, what does the receiver of the email need? What does their day and life look like? What does their inbox look like? And think about delivering an experience to them, right? And here is very, very simple. Here are the four steps you need to get right to write killer sales emails. Come on in, people. Fill out the blanks here. Don't stand outside. Come on in. First, the very first and most important thing is that I need to open your email, right? I need to see it in my inbox and it needs to entice me to want to open it. This is the thing you should be spending 80% on your time on. Every day, there's about 20 people that send me their email to get feedback. And every day, I have an auto-reply that says, where the fuck is the subject line? I don't know if I would ever see this. How can I give you feedback if you're not including the subject line? But as humans, we think, since the text of my email has many more words than the subject line, probably is more important. Wrong. Right? If you have a good open rate, you might have a 30, 40% open rate. That means 60%. Never fucking see a single word you've written in that email. First, they need to open it. Then they need to read that shit. You think just because I open it, now I'm reading everything. I don't. 
I honest, nobody does. Do you? Do you really read carefully word by word, meditate, read again, share, share it with other people, go reading it, print it out, look at it? No. You scan that fucking thing and decide to move on with your life. So you need to write something that's worth reading. And now I need to fucking respond. You need to tell me exactly what you want from me and why. And because I won't respond the first time around, you need to have a follow-up strategy. So no billboard subject lines. But even if you nail down the subject and then the content, you're still competing for attention with hundreds of other emails in your prospect's inbox. So you have to be prepared for follow-ups. Many follow-ups. Here is how many. So when it's cold, I wouldn't do more than eight follow-ups. That's my personal ethics, but everybody can choose that on their own. If it's warm, if we have a connection, this is a high-value interaction. It seems like there's a promise to really do great things. I will follow up forever. Forever. Until I get a response, yes, it's good, no, it's good. Maybe is where startups and everything else of value goes to die. If you are not as crazy as I am, and if you just double the follow-ups you do, we make the world a better place, I promise you. Steady is a determined man, that's for sure. I know, I've met him. But the key message in Steady's talk, just as in everyone else's that you've heard on this podcast, is the part about talking to your customers to understand how what you are doing affects them. Getting the valuable feedback. Here is how that directly matters to email selling. The best expert to get advice from are your prospects and your customers. Create feedback loops. When you send an email and people open it and they decide to jump on a call with you, for instance, don't just launch the call with like, hey, so excited to talk to you. Let me tell you everything about clothes. Here's the thing you should do instead. Hey, before we start talking about the proposition of working together, let me ask you, I'm sure you're a busy person, you're getting tons of emails. What made you want to respond to my email? What made my email stand out? Learn from your customers, learn from your prospects. When you hear the same thing again and again and again, you're gonna learn how to improve. And conversely, you could call people that open and don't respond, and you don't have to say, my software told me you opened it 720 times. It's a little creepy, right? Just call people and say, hey, I try to get in touch with you, this is probably not for you as you know, the founder or a senior member of the team or founding team, whatever, give yourself some title that's enticing. I just need one minute of advice from you so we can build a better business. People love to give advice. People love to give advice, right? So you go, hey, I sent you a few emails. I assume these emails you've probably seen maybe fleetingly, but you decided it's not from me, right? The person either gonna go, I don't remember or yeah. Then ask, why, right? What sucked about my email? Have you ever received a great email? What advice would you give? If you were an advisor on our advisory board or a board of directors, what advice would you give me if I wanted to reach people like you in your position with an email? I believe we have something great, but I need to be able to communicate it well. What would you say? How would you do it if you were the founder of our company? You'd be surprised how much time and how much advice people will give you if you ask them for it. I know none of this is easy, talking to customers or any other aspect of building and growing a SaaS company. That's why over 60 episodes ago, I started asking my guests the same final question at the end of our interviews. How do you stay healthy and sane on the journey? I've heard all sorts of answers from meditation, to spending time with family, to practicing not taking myself too seriously, to running ultra marathons and climbing high peaks, to even not doing anything because their business is their sanity. Everyone deals differently with their hardships. 
I want to leave you on this special episode with a little story that Patrick Campbell told at Sastel 18, at another stage about how he deals with hardship. It starts with cancer, uh, which he has been diagnosed with three times, but it ends with a piece of sage advice. My advice for you is to join your community of 4,000 incredible SaaS founders, execs and investors from across the globe for three days this October in Dublin. To learn, to chat, to connect, we all need to get out of the office sometimes and learn from those that are blazing a trail in SaaS uh, to see what we can do to keep growing our businesses. Uh, grab a ticket now at the best possible price at sasstop.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Here's Patrick. So I, um, I'm not going to go too deep in this. I can. I have nothing against it. I just I don't want it to be uh, emotionally masturbatory about like, oh, my God, this happened. And it sucked because it absolutely did suck. Um, the first time I had cancer was actually about 2011. I was working at Google. Um, if you're ever going to get sick, the best place to work is Google. Um, my boss was basically like, hey, like, you don't have to show up. We'll keep paying you. Like, just go away for a quarter. It's totally fine. Um, I didn't see a single like invoice. I know you guys all have you know healthcare here, but that's kind of a big deal in the United States. Um, and the second time I had cancer, unfortunately, happened about two years into building Profwell slash Price Intelligently. Um, and the reason that this sucks is not because obviously there's you know some medical implications and all that kind of fun stuff, but the big reason it sucks is because when you're young, um, and most of you in this room are relatively young. You don't have necessarily this, you know, feeling that you're going to live forever, but you have a little bit of this feeling of invincibility, right? Like you're Superman, you're Superwoman. Um, it's something where you know, like, you can't stop a speeding bullet, but you feel things are inevitable, right? Like, hey, I'm in my early 20s. I'll figure that out when I'm in my late 20s. Um, when I get into my 30s, that's when I'll get married or buy a house. Um, when I get into my 40s, that's when I'll do that. Oh, I'll figure that out when you're retiring, right? And the issue that that has is that oftentimes you end up putting a lot of stuff off. And for me, kind of facing this a bit of mortality, um, it was really, really good to kind of face that ticking clock. And the reason I think this is an important point is that in a lot of our companies, a lot of interpersonal relationships, we waste so much time. And a lot of that time gets wasted because we put up with so much bullshit. Um, If you think about a lot of the interpersonal relationships that you have, a lot of times there's things that you're not saying to those individuals, especially ones that work at the company, that you probably should have those conversations, both positive and negative. And I don't want you to all get cancer to have to realize this. I think it's a pretty easy concept to understand. But I think it's one of those things where you have to really reevaluate that whole time aspect of what you're dedicating your life to. And the reason for this is that you are going to die one day. I know this is like the most ominous slide ever. I felt really nervous about putting it in there and I don't want to get too morbid. But we all know that there's going to be some sort of terminal aspect to our lives. Hopefully, it's very, very far down the road. But in a lot of cases, I think a lot of us just think about that invincibility and that inevitability rather than focusing on the now. And to bring this back, obviously, to companies, I think one thing to do, um, and this is just a quick tactical note, um, is implement what I like to call if I die docs. Again, I know that's super morbid. This came out because there was a possibility that I was actually going to die. That's why we called these these. Um, I'm good now, by the way. I just realized I didn't say that. I'm like totally fine, um, so don't worry. Um, But these if I die docs are basically Google spreadsheets, and no matter your role or no matter your organization, 
you basically fill out everything that's going on, the values, the structures, so that if someone, you know, proverbially gets hit by a bus, the person who comes into that role can basically take it on right away um, and ultimately, you know, not miss too much of a beat. Um, just for you know, context, the reason these are so important, how many founders out of 10 do you think have some sort of documentation to transfer their role or transfer something or another? Any ideas? So basically, 7 out of 10 of us don't have documentation that if we didn't exist, um, our companies would be like, oh my god, like where the hell is everything, right? Because you don't really think about this as you're building. Um, but what's interesting is that this actually helps as you're building, mainly because all of a sudden it helps other people understand what's going on and what those expectations look like. Now to bring this back a little bit to time, what this really forced, this whole experience really forced me to realize um, is who am I and what do I want to do? And I understand that's super existential, but I think a lot of us, what we end up doing, um, and especially when I was going through treatment, what I realized is like I was going through treatment and then like people that I thought were friends were like out drinking and posting pictures on Instagram, which is totally cool, but it was one of those situations where I realized like we can't do all the things and we can't be everything to all people. And there's a lot of implications for that in particular, but I think one thing you realize as you grow up, but also when you face some of these hardships, is that you can very much choose your friends but you also can very much choose what you want to do. So some of you in this room, you want to build a $100 million or a billion dollar company. Others of you want to build enough that you can have a really, really nice lifestyle and work as little as possible. Both of those things are perfectly okay, but I think what's really, really important is that you have to understand what you want and who you want to be, because oftentimes what ends up happening is there's a huge dissonance between what we say we want and what we're actually doing.